Welcome to the Quality Meat Scotland podcast. Industry updates and best practice to promote, support, develop and protect the Scottish red meat sector. Hello and thanks very much for downloading this podcast. I'm Mark Stephen. What a difference a few days make. A couple of weeks ago we had snow and sub-zero conditions and now it's feeling much more like spring. Which leads us kind of nicely to the topic of this podcast, calving what to do before and after, how to minimise losses, nutrition for the cow, and the real importance of keeping good records. I'm joined today by Hugh Thompson, Clinical Director of the Seafield Vet Group in Keith. Now, Hugh's worked predominantly in farm animal practice for the last 14 years, and he's got a real passion for animal health and fertility. His family is a farm in Murrayshire, which is 200 commercial cows, 400 ewes, and a substantial arable sector. Euden Gordon is the fifth generation of the family to farm at Wellheads Huntley. It's an upland, predominantly beef enterprise with 300 Limousin Cross Simmental Suckler cows, which are all bull to the Charlie, to produce yearling store cattle. I say predominantly because the farm's also home to about 1,200 Scotch mules. The farm's got a good reputation for producing quality commercial livestock, and Ewan really wants to keep it that way. Hugh, I'm going to start with you. Before we get on to this year. How did last year go? Summarise it for me. Well, last year's calving was was broadly successful, I would say. I think the, the weather was favourable. Cattle came in in probably quite good condition, so we weren't playing catch-up with the uh, cow condition. And, um, you know, I think as a result, colostal quality was good. And again, good good forage was made, so cattle were, were milking on what was produced. So I think, broadly speaking, it was good. I think this year poses different challenges because the cows are probably even fitter this year and probably the same with the ewes. Looking back on last year Ewan, what was it like in your farm? Yeah, it was a successful year for livestock in the northeast as a whole. Uh, it was a very good grass growing year especially I made a lot of good quality silage. Cows bulled well uh, in the springtime out with the grass. Lambs got off to a terrific start and that kind of continued right through the summer. Got lambs away early Good weights off the grass, calves thrived well, and as Hugh said, everything was housed in good order. So, no, on the whole, it was a good year for livestock. Looking ahead to calving this year, Ewan, I don't want to jinx it, but I mean, how's it looking? Yeah, well, we're actually about halfway through calving uh, just now. We started on the first days of February, so we are kind of well on our way through. But yeah, so far, so good. As I say, we made a lot of good quality silage. We have been uh, we had all that analysed. We're feeding draft and soya in the ration to increase protein again, lead to colostrum. So, yeah, cows are cows are fit. They're not fat. They're just fine. We've been uh, been calving away. Milk colostrum quality is good. Calves are getting off to a good start. And days like this, you know, even though they're inside, they're also content. So, yeah, here's hoping it continues. Hugh, speaking as a clinician, I mean, when should we start preparing for calving? Well, it probably starts at weaning. You're aware of what cows are in calf at that point. Some farmers are actually even scanning in advance of weaning now, but it's a natural point with your spring calvers that when your calves are weaned in the back end, you'd be scanning at that point to see. And then obviously you're, you're taking your empty cows out, giving more space and facilities to cows that are pregnant so I think it really starts then and when the cows dry that's the point where you you can manage condition on the cows safely so you can you can feed for condition at that point most cows last year would have come off very fit off grass 
while still doing a job with their calf. So actually, cows have probably been able to be maintained this winter on not an extensive ration at all, really. What we tend to do and what often happens is it's just toned up in terms of the diet as you get closer to calving, really. But, um, you know, the energy requirements of the dry cow are, are not extensive at that point. You and if I were to present you with a calendar, when do you start preparing for the calving season? Our herd is split in two. We've got spring calvers and autumn calvers. We start with spring calvers, calf weaned uh, October into November. So some cows are housed inside. The fittest are housed um, are kept out in the hill. From October, we're only kind of three months off calving, the 1st of February. We just want to maintain the cow's body condition. We're not wanting her to lay down fat or anything. We're all grass farms, so we everyone's a silage-based diet. So obviously silage last year is high dry matter, good ME and good D value. So we don't have, we're not been feeding much silage, just enough to keep them going through to calving on the first of February. About a month pre-calving, we split cows into with our scanning dates. So that's when we start introducing a wee bit of draft and uh, soya just to increase colostrum quality coming up to the calving. In the back end cows, we don't wean the calves until the 1st of August with the cows calving on the 20th of August just to keep the condition off their backs as well and um, try and reduce mastitis. So about the 1st of August, when the calves are weaned, the cows just go into a bare grass field with access to mineral buckets and straw. And uh, that kind of keeps them going through calving and uh, while they're calving. And then after calving, they're onto, onto grass pastures, to onto rising plain and nutrition for bulling again. So that's the kind of setup we are working here. You've obviously got you know quite a well-honed system, but how detailed is your record keeping? Um, could always be better, <laughs> but um, the cow front we do as much recording as possible. You can never have too much information. Uh, well, we took part in the beef efficiency scheme, so that was a good way of keeping tabs and things. Everything was recorded, you know, from cow temperament, calf vigor, cow quality and quantity of colostrum as an extra. Everything's recorded, you know, calving dates and bulling dates and seeing the calving interval and trying to keep that as low as possible. So, yeah, we're constantly looking at records just to make sure because there's no room in any herd for any passengers. Hugh, why are records so important? Well, I think when we're dealing with a problem and often with the suckler cattle job, you're often looking back retrospectively to see what happened. You know, sometimes you're actually looking back often 12 months plus in advance. So records are really important, A, so that you can kind of benchmark against yourself year on year. Are we moving in the right direction in terms of performance? So if you take, like, say, Ewan and John, Will Heads there, it's what's phenomenal about their records are that you can go back and you can pull out individual information on ACAF, and what we're, what we're really trying to do with um, is you're looking at calves that have potentially not been successful in the system. And then what that does is if they're not successful, it poses a risk to their cohorts. It poses a risk to their, their pals. So the aim at Wellheads really is to try and um, get as many calves to go through the system successfully in terms of colostrum intake. And then because we've been, we've actually done some monitoring of the colostrum quality, we actually have tested some calves to see if colostrum's been 
successfully um, absorbed as well. We do that by just taking a, a blood sample from a percentage of the calves. And the good thing is that inevitably there will be a lot of calves that are successful. There will be one or two that aren't, and there's usually a reason why that is. So it just helps to piece the puzzle together. And then, you know, to, to go a step further on all of our farms, if that then relates to like a respiratory disease problem later in the year, then we're aware of how successful the calf has come through that period. And that allows us to focus our attentions on how we can solve the problem, but why it might have happened in the first place and obviously prevent it for the, the next year by focusing a bit more on key areas. So it just allows us to focus in on the detail rather than starting from scratch and pulling all loads of information out that might not, not be there for a start. Prevention's better than cure, though, Hugh. So how do you go about minimising potential losses? So much of it relates to that early period of life. Probably the, the, the key period is three weeks in advance of calving and, and three weeks post-calving. If the calf comes through that period successfully, then you're on to a good, a, you know, a winning run. So really, if we've gone down the road of identified risks of disease and say we've vaccinated cows in advance, then what we need is that those antibodies from the colostrum, which would include the the diseases that we've vaccinated for, the, the classic one would be things like um, calf scour. So there's various vaccines available now that will include things like rotavirus, coronavirus, E. coli. So they're, they're passing the antibodies in the milk. But obviously, we've spent the money on the vaccine and we've tried to keep the cow in good condition, but it's essential then that the calf gets the colostrum, so therefore it gets the antibodies. And then equally, if the immune system of the calf at that point is fired up, then it's prepared for the challenges later in in life, which may be respiratory disease either within that period of calving or later maybe when the cattle are housed in, in the back end. Yeah, I just agree totally with what Hugh is saying there. Um, there is no doubt about it. Looking back over records, and it's all down to colostrum and antibody Passover. So yeah, just like Hugh said, we're vaccinating with Rotavec pre-calving and ensuring uh, the calf gets that maximum intake of colostrum so that they do get a good pass over the colostrum. So, yeah, that's the one thing I would think we've uh, definitely improved on over the years. Uh, we're pretty well set up here with a calving shed and a handling facility right well, in the calving shed. So if we're unsure if a calf suckled enough or it needs a hand, it's very easy cow in give it a hand suckle or we're doing a lot of um, taking milk from the cows, maybe tubing the calf a wee bit extra if they don't think it's had enough. We're uh, stripping colostrum off the cows and freezing it so that if there's a cow that calves maybe not the same milk quantity as others, we can uh, thaw it out and give the calf that colostrum there because I don't think there's anything beats the cow's own colostrum, especially when it contains all the the best antibodies so that's what we are kind of going down the route as i say for trying to prevent losses but there's a lot of other things away from the colostrum it's important i think have really good handling facilities when you're calving cows as well uh, if you're unsure or something you can it's very easy to put it in check is it back feet is everything coming okay is it twisted big calf i've seen us put in many cows into the down the race and no everyone's coming fine we'll just leave it be but at the same time you could identify a problem early and that might just lead to saving the calf plenty bedding clean pens clean gates you know hygiene navels hygiene on navels 
just constantly monitoring and checking things. Uh, there's kind of someone on the go in the cabin shed just about all the time, just to make sure there's everything's correct and all the calves are calves get the best start possible. As Hugh said, three weeks after calving's really important if they can get through that stage. Yeah, they're on to a winner. Hugh, when we talk about checking the quality of the colostrum, how do you do that? Is it possible to do it on farm? Yes, it is. Yes. There's kind of two stages, really. There's obviously the colostrum the cow produces, and then there's a case of, well, does that then transfer into the calf? So if we're concerned about colostrum quality with the cow or heifer, then we can actually test the density of that colostrum. And it's a it's a pretty crude measure, but it's called a colostrometer. But all you do is you, is you submerge that in the colostrum. The thicker the colostrum is, the better the quality. And it, again, it seems quite crude. I mean, it's something that we could probably, most of us could eyeball, but it gives you a, an actual figure. And then if we're testing whether the animal is successful, then that would be a blood sample that can be done between roughly 24 hours of age and kind of five days. So there's quite a narrow window there. But what we would do is we would probably go onto a farm like Ewan's and we would test, test say, six to ten of the calves that were born within that time period so you've you've got access there's going to be a few eligible calves when you go onto the farm with the numbers that Ewan's calving down and then with that blood it's just a red serum tube we can test either the the actual protein within the serum and so it's spun down and we take the and and that can be done on farm just by using a refractometer so it's again it's a pretty cheap bit of equipment and it's used for lots of other things in the veterinary world, we would look at it, urine samples and things like that with it. But it's things that can be bought off Amazon or off the internet now quite easily. Or it can be sent away to one of the vet labs and they'll, they'll do a zinc sulfate turbidity test. But the the two tests are very closely related in terms of the protein that's in that serum is a direct, directly proportional to how successful the calf's colostrum intake was during that first kind of six six hours of life. We've our own refractometer here, so if we have a cow in the race and we're uh, and we're taking colostrum off our first storing in the freezer, we'll just quickly test it and see. There's a little scale on it, so anything above twenty three, I think, is uh, is classed as good quality. So this year we're kind, of, as I say, we've been feeding soy about a month before calving, so we're finding a lot of colostrums twenty seven heading towards thirty. But it's amazing you do kind of build up a picture. Some of the older cows, maybe not just quite milking so well, can find them down at about the 20 to 21. Heifers can also be a wee bit lower as well. So um, it's just to build up a picture, just to try make sure, uh, you know, that the majority of them are all uh, of a good, a good standard. And then uh, at least you know that you've got uh, what you've got stored in the freezer for when you do need colostrum is, uh, is quite... Is quite good kind of stuff. Hugh, we've spoken quite a lot about colostrum and things like that, and silage and and you know dry matter and things like that. I mean, nutrition is, when all said and done, pretty key to this, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the nutritional side of it. Having said that, there's been some work done looking at colostrum quality in cows of different body conditions, and actually, the cow has to be grossly obese or the opposite, you know, very emaciated before colostrum quality is actually affected. So in terms of colostrum quality nutrition, but I think in terms of milk yield, uh, that the, the, the feeding at that point is more important. And I think really if you've got condition on a cow, then you want to try and use that back fat by supplementing it with a high quality form of protein 
And, you know, Ewan mentioned feeding a wee bit of soya. And if you have got a condition on the cows, that quality protein is going gonna, is gonna to work in conjunction with the back fat of the cow. And that's going to give you a, you know, that the cow's going to milk at that point. And a good cow will lose condition after she calves. So you're just kind of topping that level up. And the spring calver, historically, the idea is that the pattern of milk yield would mimic the, the grass yield. But, you know, there's more and more people calving out of season at different points. So you've got January calvers now. You know, that poses a challenge in the sense that the calf is with its mother for longer inside, potentially. Whereas you've got, you know, other systems now where people are calving outside in May. You know, and again, the beauty of like the Ewan and John system is that they're in control of the diet when they're calving. The downside of that is that you're feeding the cow when it costs you the most to do that. Whereas the guys that are calving in April, May, maybe outside, they're not in control of grass quality and growth, but they're not having to put in feed at a time where milk yield is highest. You and I said right from the off that you are the fifth generation at Wellheads. Now, obviously, you've got access to some fairly serious science nowadays and veterinary advice and everything else, but how would your great-grandfather have done this? How would he have known what the nutritional quality actually was? Have you any idea? Um, to a degree, but unfortunately, I, I never I never met my granddad, so I've uh, never had the chance to ask him that question. But I do feel nowadays the way thing, even just speaking with Dad and other other farmers of an older generation that there seems to be so much more diseases and uh, factors that you just don't seem to have so much control of nowadays on the go than there used to be. You know, everyone's vaccinating for everything nowadays. There are constant pneumonia vaccines, BVD, Lepto, Rotavec. You know, you're constantly vaccinating cows for things and then also calves, you know, for clostridial diseases, um, pneumonia prevention, fluke, worms, you know, the list's endless. Whereas I don't think uh, many years ago there was the same pressure. Also, nowadays, everyone's trying to get the most out of their farm. So stocking densities have increased. Um, a lot more use of, uh, you know, artificial fertilizers. Everyone's pushing the thing to the limit. So, you know, I think back a good few years ago, there wasn't the same pressure on things. Uh, maybe cows stayed outside for longer. Uh, hard to answer. There's maybe a lot more native breeds, but they're not maybe not quite so uh, quite as um, profitable nowadays as what um, some of your continental breeds are that can finish that bit quicker. Native breeds probably could have stayed outside for longer, much more healthier. So yeah, things have definitely changed, but I think it's just the change that had to happen so that people could maximise output from their from their farm. I do agree with what Ewan has said to an extent in the sense that disease pressure has increased. What we have available to us has equally increased, but that the same is often said in, in many cases where diseases evolve, but we equally have to keep evolving what we have to overcome those diseases. I think Ewan hits the nail on the head when he talks about intensity of the system has increased. So... If you take the size of um, finishing animals, say, even 20 years ago, uh, or maybe more 30 years ago, they'd be very different to what they are now. And if you, if you relate muscle mass of an animal relative to lung capacity, we, we've basically, basically bred an animal to increase. Dry matter intake is, is crucial um, in terms of output. So the more you can get an animal to eat, the more weight it will gain. So we've actually, what we've done is we've bred cattle with bigger rumens and what that's really done is it's almost squeezed the lung 
the lung field. So we've got cattle with smaller lungs relative to the muscle mass they have. And then we take continental cattle in some cases with double muscled genes. Again, their requirements for oxygen are far higher. Therefore, their risk of respiratory disease is higher. Okay, there's a higher output per acre or, or per farm, but that requires a higher level of input. So, you know, that I think we need to be mindful that whilst in any system, if we get a higher output, inevitably we will have more cost to get that animal to the end point. And, you know, I think if you take you and, and John's system there at Wellheads, it's a, it is a high input system. You know, you and, and John are spending a lot of man hours focusing on that attention to detail, but they're getting the output at the other end. And that's, uh, I think that's really why, how things have changed. But um, if you speak to a lot of farmers about what their limiting factors are, it seems to be cash and land. And uh, so you make, they make the best of what you have. And I suspect Ewan's great-grandfather would have said exactly the same thing, cash and land. Hugh Thompson, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. And Ewan, it's been a pleasure speaking to you too. No, that's great. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you. Next week, we're going to be looking at something very similar, but this time with sheep, as we bring you a pre-lambing special. Until then, I'm Mark Stephen. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Call to Meet Scotland podcast. For news and to listen back to previous episodes of the podcast, visit qmscotland.co.uk. For Scotch beef, Scotch lamb and specially selected pork recipe videos and inspiration, visit www.scotchkitchen.com or follow Scotch Kitchen on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. <laughs>